Good morning, everyone. I want to extend that welcome to you all this morning. If I haven't met you before, I would like to, uh, so please don't rush off. My name is Michiel, and this is my lovely wife, Monique. We have been married for nine, going on ten years, um, and we have four lovely little boys. They're sitting right over there. Um, and this morning, we get to continue this amazing series that we've started in Daniel um, uh, we're in the third installment, so if, uh, if, you, if you've joined us and you haven't been the last two weeks, you're still, you're still early in. Um, and, and we, this morning, get to look at the story of Daniel through the lens of raising faithful children, faithful children, um, raising faithful children. And as we look at the story of Daniel, we see that it's totally possible to raise kids that can not just live, but thrive and excel even in a hostile and opposing culture. And this is more relevant to us than we might realize. Increasingly, we are living in a post-Christian culture, and so the world is changing around us, and you will notice that in increasing measure, uh, folks are becoming more intolerant and perhaps even opposing towards the Christian faith and, and what we believe. And so uh, as we look at the story and we look at the, uh, the story of Daniel and his, his companions, um, we want to glean from this. How can we uh, raise children and the next generation that, uh, that could, could stand and thrive in this kind of environment? And I, I, just before you tune out, if you, are, if you are single, if you do not yet have kids, if you have got grandkids, this is still relevant because we're not just talking about biological kids. We're talking about the next generation of believers. Um, so please, this is going to be relevant um, to all of us, not just those of us that are parents. So please stay with us. So we're going we're gonna to pick up the story of Daniel. The last two weeks, we've kind of been in the beginning of the story. We're going to go through a little bit more this week. But before we do, I want to dive in and give us some context. If you know me, I like to over-contextualize. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll keep it short. Um, but where do, they, where do they find themselves? Matt did a great job of showing us like where in the Bible the story fits in. But in history, where do we find ourselves in the story? So um, it was the 7th the seventh, seventh century before Christ, and they're in the Middle East, and there's these two superpowers. You've got Egypt and you've got Babylon, and they're duking it out to see who's the greatest nation. And it's just a matter of time until they have a, a battle. And this happens, and they go to war uh, along the Euphrates River. And as we know, Babylon wins, and so Egypt retreats, and they go back. But that leaves Israel exposed and undefended. And so Nebuchadnezzar, who's leading the Babylonian army, just captures Jerusalem. And um, while he's there, busy celebrating that he just conquered, he gets word that his father has passed away. The king is dead. And so he rushes back home to take the throne. And as he returns, he's crowned king. But it's in this journey, on him returning home, that he takes a whole bunch of the valuables out of the temple, and he takes the cream of the crop in terms of the young men, and he goes back home. And it's, it's in that space, it's those cream of the crop where Daniel and his mates get taken back to Babylon. So that's, that's a little look in terms of history at where they're at. But where do they find themselves in terms of the Babylonian culture? You've got these four young men, and... Uh, the studies say that they were teenagers. They were probably about 14 or 15 years old. They are stripped um, from this land. So their, their homeland has been conquered. They're now essentially prisoners of war. They're taken away from their family, from their culture, from anything that would have given them a sense of safety or security or purpose. They're removed from that. They are 
traveled hundreds of kilometers away from home into this foreign culture, this Babylonian culture, which is this huge city, and they, the pressure for them to comply and adhere to Babylonian culture is pretty intense because not only are they these young men, but they're now subject to the most powerful authority known to that known world, um, which, is, which is now Nebuchadnezzar. And they're put into this three-year training program, and the idea is that they would be trained by the best teachers of the world, and, and, and this is uh, within Babylon's pagan culture. So this is, um, you know, by astrologers and magicians and soothsayers and wise men. They're taught everything other than what they would have known. And the, the idea is that once they've gone through this three-year training program, their teachers and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, would assess how they performed, and then they'd go into a, a role of public service. They would serve the, the people of Babylon under the king, um, and because we've, we've seen already they were uh, favored by the, the, both their teachers and Nebuchadnezzar, they're given enviable positions. They're actually given really good positions. And so that also puts a target on their back. And so no matter which way you look at it, they're just in a very tense space, um, culturally speaking. And so as we, as we look at this story uh, and we, we understand a little bit of where they're at, we want to glean how do these guys not just live and, and, and succeed to stay alive in this opposing culture, but they seem to thrive and remain faithful. What is it that we can learn from them that we can take away from the story? Uh, so that's what we want to we answer and look at a little bit closely. I want to pray for us. Uh, Lord God, as we dive into the story, would you speak to us? Would you please come and would you reveal your truth? Would you open our hearts? And Holy Spirit, would you come and do a work in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. So I think there is something valuable. Definitely going to need my pen for all my notes that I'm going to take. So I'll pick that up. <laughs> um, I, oh my gosh! I'm just going to leave it. I'm just going to leave it. Um, I think there's value. Uh, there's something really valuable for us to glean from these four men's lives, and particularly the moments where they have exercised this faithfulness that we hear about. And so I'm going to take us through four examples of that faithfulness in the scripture. Please note that sometimes in these examples, they're not young anymore. Time has done a thing, and they're old in some of these examples. So uh, shame. Imagine. Never mind. <coughs> okay, the first one is from Daniel 1 verse 8 to 10. And this is where Daniel's not to, uh, prepared to defile himself with the food. And so it says here, Daniel 1, verse 8 to 10, it's just a little bit, but I'll explain some more. It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And the story goes that Dan, then Daniel then asks, can you just test us for 10 days? And if we're looking better than the rest, then, you know, you've got your answer. And so at the end of their training session, they are presented to the king. And the king finds them superior in every single way. And so that's quite amazing. But uh, I think what is important here is that Daniel had to apply a measure of wisdom and discernment to decide how he was going to walk the knife edge of faithfulness and not entirely isolate from the culture that he finds himself in, but not entirely becoming like that culture either. And so in this particular example, Babylonian food was quite problematic because of a lot of it was actually forbidden in Mosaic law. So there's, you know, Jewish people and pork. It doesn't go together. 
other than that, the Babylonian food would actually have been offered to the Babylonian gods before it was eaten. And so Daniel's now hearing, uh, staring straight in the face of rich food that would have been a real privilege to eat, comes from the king's table, it's good stuff, but it also would have been an insult to the king if he didn't eat it, and that could have caused him some problems. And so here in this moment, Daniel is having to choose to stay close to God through choosing obedience, and so he's choosing faithfulness in obedience, uh, and that is ultimately what decides what is going to nourish them and what is going to sustain them. It's not going to be Babylon. It's not going to be the Babylonian gods. It's not going to be the Babylonian food. It's going to be God alone, and that is a choice that Daniel makes in that moment of faithfulness. Okay, that's example number one. The second one is from Daniel 3, verse 16 to 18. It's not up at all, so if you want to look, you can. It's just a little turnover of the page. Three, chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. So in this portion, uh, out of jealousy, because Daniel and them have just been pretty rocking and rolling at this point, uh, many of the administrators are in an attempt to trap Daniel, try to convince the king to set a law in place that everybody should pray to the king only and nobody should pray to anybody else. And if they are caught praying to anybody else, they should be executed. And so um, in this story then over here, we see Daniel prays, he gets reported to the king, uh, and he is supposed to be thrown into the lion's den for his execution. So I imagine that at this point, Daniel is really used to this, like, perverse culture. He is used to um, the spiritual climate and the cultural climate being against everything that he stands for. And so I imagine that Daniel would have set his mind to do what he's been taught to do despite what is going on around him. And so I'm going to quickly read here. What? Guys, sorry. Okay, let's try again. Uh, second example, I mean, I can do this one, that's okay. 16, I'm going to skip over, I'll come back to that. So, now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, that's the law about praying, he went home, I love that, now when he learned, he went home, so casual, <laughs> to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. And so here, Daniel is walking in faithfulness by daily investing in that personal, private, sacred space between him and God. And so there we see that there's a faithfulness here in maintaining a relationship with the Lord. Okay, and then the second example, which actually I'm going to, it's not the second example, but this one. <laughs> uh, Daniel 3, back of page, 316. And uh, let's have a look that I get this right. Okay, I'm going to read it first. 3.16. So this is where Nebuchadnezzar erects a statue of gold of himself, and he commands everyone to worship the statue. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's cronies, are not willing to worship it. And uh, they make that verbal, they make that known, and they are then caught out, and then they are again brought before the king, and this is what they say. So 3.16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Uh, and so... I love that the three here are just showing a measure of respectfulness, just my own personal thing. I love that there is this 
thoughtful, respectful communication. And it's not just this moment. There's a tone of it throughout the Bible, uh, uh, throughout the story. And I, I really love that, just on, as a side note. But with respect to faithfulness, I love that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are holding the line of faithfulness within worship here. And so I think all of us, we can attest to the fact that it's really easy to love something so much that you begin to honor it and you adore it. And next thing, you're worshiping it, and it's actually an idolatrous thing. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going, eyes wide open. We are not willing to cross this line. We are maintaining faithfulness in worship here. And so I love that progression of these three points. There's faithfulness and obedience. There's faithfulness in worship, and there's faithfulness in a a quiet personal relationship with the Lord. And then the last example, which I think is less known, but I think still really beautiful if you take a look at it. It is in Daniel 9, 21. Not there, a little bit more. Okay. Um, so I'm going to just read it. It might be a bit strange, and then I'm going to try to explain it. Let's see how it goes. Uh, while I was still, this is Daniel speaking, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. And so the part that I want to highlight to you, such a strange verse, is about the time of the evening sacrifice. So pre-Babylonian exile, the Jewish people would have had a customary time of sacrifice twice a day in the morning and in the early evening. And so they would do that together as a people. They would come, they would sacrifice something, and it would be a time set apart for devotion and worship to God. And so that's something that they did as a custom, as a regular practice every, every day. And now, here at this example, this is like, I think, something like 70 years post-initial exile, which means that this is an example here of Daniel holding on to those practices 70 years later. That is remarkable. And so there's this incredible faithfulness that he's, he's exhibiting here. He is not willing to be isolated from God because he's not around his people. He's not willing to be isolated from God because he's not by the temple, which in the Old Testament is quite a big theme. It's the place where the people met with the Lord. He's just not willing to stand for it. Despite being separate from everything that he knows, I'm going to hold on to these practices that I have been formed in. And so these young men have managed to walk as faithful followers of the Lord, faithful over time, which I think is even more remarkable than a one and done. All of us can show one area in our lives where we're like, yeah, we've been faithful. But for 70 years, I don't know, man, like... Let's catch up when I'm 70 and see if that's true of me. Um, so I think, as I think about these things, man, I go, wow, this is really hectic. Their faithfulness culture, as Nikhil said, that was super hostile. And then I begin to go like, oh, that actually sounds really familiar. That's our culture. That's the culture that we live in. And so then I think about our kids, and I want to cry. And then I think about Daniel. I go, how did that happen? And so we have to start going, hang on. How is it that they were formed so strongly that they were able to incline themselves consistently over time to faithfulness, despite the Jewish customs and practices being not, not even having, having a trace of them in the space where they were at. And so I'm going to let Michael answer that wonderful question. Thanks, Nick. So we know from Matt's introduction about two weeks ago that the people of Israel have a really terrible track record of being faithful. <laughs> they just make bad decision after bad decision. And that's ultimately what leads to this time of exile, is God is eventually going, man, you know, after all of this, have, have a go. Um, and so we, as we, as we kind of look at this, we've got to ask ourselves, you, you, you hear these examples that Monique just shared, how were these guys, like when and where were they formed in that chaos of like bad kings and bad decisions? How were they formed in such a way that they could remain faithful and thrive in exile? To answer that question, we have to go back a little bit. 
Um, and we can, we can find the answer by looking at who the king was that reigned when they were kids. When they were growing up, who was the king that was, was in rule and reign? And we learn about this in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, or 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and 35. So if, you've, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with Kings or Chronicles, those are like historical books that recount what happened to the people of Israel and what happened to the kings in their time of rule. So they're historical books. So we can, we can take a look back at, at these books, and we're, we're going to dive in. Initially, I pulled out a ton of verses to highlight some stories about this king, and before I knew it, I had pretty much two chapters, so I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to read it verse for verse. I'm going to do my best to recount it to you and just pull out a few, a few verses to make some points. Um, so this king that was, was ruling and reigning when, when Daniel and his friends were, were children is the King Josiah. Um, and so we first learn about him. He comes to be king at the tender age of eight. Um, so those of you that are eight over here, no pressure. Um, but so early on, we can see this in two, 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 2. This is what it says. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. So from early on, he already sets out to do what's right. And I think this is the only king where it says that for everyone else, it's like he did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and he, so he sets out, even from a young, a young boy, to, to honor God. Um, and it's, it goes on to say that in the, in the 18th year of his rule, he sets out to restore the temple. The temple had been neglected uh, and just in a poor form from all the kings prior. So he sets out to restore the temple. He sends his administrators to go take, take cash out the temple because they'd stored money there and start, give it to the laborers, start reforming this place to its former glory. And it says they go to the high priest um, and they start doing that. And the high priest goes, I found the book of the law. Essentially, they'd lost the Bible for who knows how many years prior, and he finds it. <laughs> and so they send it back to Josiah. His, administ his minister uh, or his, his secretary reads it to him. Um, and as he hears the words, it says he gets like super emotional and he tears his clothes. He, then he says this to them. He says, uh, this is 2 Chronicles 34, 21. He says, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. So he's moved. He's gutted. He realizes, shucks, we are like in the opposite side of where we should be. Then he says, can you go and like seek out the Lord? Uh, can you go, and they, they find a, a prophetess, and they ask the prophetess, and this is what the prophetess says. This is um, aimed at Josiah. This is verse 27 of, of 2 Chronicles 34. Because your heart was responsive, and, hum and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place and on those who live here. Now this is amazing, because essentially what God is saying is, because of Josiah's repentance and because of his humility, because he is, he's done this, God is going to delay his wrath that he pours out over these people. 
but we know because we get to, to, to read the story of Daniel that it's in this time that God raises this next generation. It's in this kind of sweet spot of time where he pushes pause on his wrath coming out that he prepares the next generation, which is this remnant that we discover in Daniel and his friends. And so back to the story. So Josiah hears from the prophetess. He gathers the whole nation of Israel and Judah. He gets them all. He gets all the elders. He goes, takes them to the temple, and he reads out the word of the Lord. They've lost this for who knows how many years. So he reads it out, and afresh, he renews this covenant between God and his people. So he sets himself apart. He sets the people apart, and he redeclares this covenant, and he reinstates it. It's a beautiful moment. And then what he does is he goes on a legendary rampage and, like, pillages all the high places, you should go and read it. Like all the things that the kid, that the kings had done prior. We're talking about idolatry, child sacrifices. The list goes on and on. He goes to all of those places and tears them down, burns them, sacrifices people. Like it's it's legendary. He goes like, yeah, it's it's go and, go and check it out. But so he goes and he he literally purifies the land. So he's he's gotten the people together. He's declared and set them aside to God. He's cleansed the land from all the evil. Then he goes and he reinstates the Passover. This is in 2 Chronicles 34, 7. Um, It says here, because he goes big. He doesn't just do Passover with him and his family. He does it with the whole nation. It says, Josiah provided for all the lay people who were there a total of 30,000 lambs and goats for the Passover. 30,000. That's for everyone. It goes on to say that even his leaders were also, because he did that of his own treasury, right? He, he gave them all those lambs. His leaders gave to the Levites. This is just a Passover of epic proportions. In verse 18, it says, the Passover had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel, and none of the kings of Israel, all the ones prior to him, had ever celebrated such a Passover as did Josiah with the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were there with the people of Jerusalem. He, he reinstates that thing like never before. And then it goes on towards the end of his life here. It talks of 2 Chronicles 34, verse 33. It says, as long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord the God of their ancestors. And so in Josiah, we have this king who pursued God without deviation. It didn't look to his left or his right. With his whole heart, with his soul, with all his might, he removed all the idols. He committed himself and the people to God. And he took them with him. He, he was upholding God's law. And then he also remembered what God had done prior by reinstating the Passover. And so you have, you have this king who essentially reformed an entire nation. This is, this is a reformation that's happened here. And it's out of this space where he was intolerant towards uh, the sinful things, where he was uh, unswayed to pursue God. And he did this, it was like this passionate, the entire nation, not just him, all of Israel were reformed to pursue God with, with everything that they had. It's out of this community, out of this culture, that Daniel and his friends were formed. That's the foundation that their faith was, was formed in, Right? And so we hear that, and surely us as a community go, man, we, each and every one of us, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're a grandparent, surely we here are to be like Josiah for the next generation. Surely we are to be like that. If we're going to be like Josiah, we need to turn to God. This is 2 Kings 23, 25. It says, before him, 
There was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. May we be like that and turn to the Lord. Okay, I think we can go home. Just joking. I have more to say. (laughs) Um, So I believe that God's heart for us is reconciliation. So he wants to reconcile us to himself. That's what Josiah was doing. That's God's heart for us as people. Uh, It's a turning from our own sinful ways, turning to God's ways because his ways are life. And so I assume if it's like that for us, it's like that for our children. That's God's heart for our children. So these little, or in some families, not so little people, are humans. They are children of God. Um, made by him, for him, in his image. And so I I think that if God's way is reconciliation and redemption for us, it is reconciliation and redemption for our children. So when Jesus says in the Gospels, let the children come to me, that's an invitation, if I've ever seen one, for our children to have their very own personal, authentic relationship with the Father. And so we, if that is true, which I think it is, we then as parents stand at this massive task of being Uh, strategically positioned by God to be the primary influences in our children's lives to encourage them towards the relationship that they'll have with the Lord. And so the practice that we keep as adults, as parents, will form them. The practices that we keep are going to be a foundation for our children. And where we lead them is where where they'll go. How you reason with them is how they'll reason themselves. How we demonstrate worship, relationship, habits, and rhythms are the ones that our children will keep. We lead our children to Jesus. We let them come to him. Or we let them meander off to the idols that we were unable to tear down in our own lives. And so we need to be, as Michiel said, I think I'll emphasize this twice more. We need to be Josiah to our children. We need to create a culture laced with worship and underpinned with devotion so that our children's souls are germinating in this rich, fertile space. And I think it's really easy to say but I think misplaced, to go, we need to teach our kids about the Bible. We need to teach our kids about prayer. We need to teach our kids about communion. And we do. We absolutely do. But I think these things will only truly um, be real to our children if we embody them ourselves. As humans, I think there's a propensity in us to read Daniel, to look for the formula, find the formula, take on the formula, apply the formula, and hope that there will be this result that comes out that was the same as Daniel. But I think it's really important to remember that the really wild um, environment that Daniel was in and that Daniel had to navigate, we too have to navigate our own set of circumstances. And that's not formula-friendly. That's relationship-driven. And so my encouragement for us as parents is to be good with Jesus ourselves, to fight for our own relationship with the Lord. And then as the Spirit prompts and provides opportunities, we invite our children into those spaces that God is calling us into as well. And so I think that our children understand more than we think. I think they're able to learn from things that we perhaps keep from them. I I believe that authenticity is such an incredible tool as we teach our kids. And I think it's more valuable than any standalone teaching moment where we just exchange words with our kids. And so as an example of this, perhaps not a perfect one, but every Sunday we drive to church and we ask our kids, okay, guys, where are we going? We're going to church. They'll chorus. And I go, okay, well, why, you know, why are we going? And they'll go, to worship Jesus. Oh, so lovely, so nice. And then we ask, how do we do that? And then sometimes they'll say, there'll be like a cacophony of sounds, shouting and whatnot. <laughs> and they'll say, by singing. 
by listening. And so the more obedient child will like put their hand up. Uh, by being with our friends. And they've learned to say those things. We've trained them to say those things. But those things will only be legitimate to them if we are living in those things, right? And so they will only, it'll, those things will only inspire them towards Jesus and towards the gathering of the saints if we ourselves are living in that space. I think we have some growing to do as parents. I think we all do. And so I think that this is a valuable moment for me to release us in a small way, um, release all of us. This journey about modeling devotion to Jesus for our children is through consistency, not perfection. And so the goal here is that we have an increased heart for God in our own lives over time so that it could produce the same in our children. And so I think, what does it mean to raise healthy kids? What is it to lead our kids to Jesus? It is to demonstrate how we ourselves go to Jesus when things are good, when things are not so good. And so that demonstration, I think, is valuable in the big, obvious, visual moments. We as a family have decided as a priority, we will be at church every Sunday. That's a big visual moment where we get to teach our kids what we prioritize. It's also valuable to teach our kids in the more humble, messy spaces when we practice forgiveness and apologies, not just with our spouse, with someone of equal state to us, but to them, to apologize when we act out with them. It's where we practice humility. It's where we practice teachability. It's where we... Uh, do the things of, of healthy conflict resolution, all these different moments, not evading tax, whatever. Um, there is so much to say in the space of how we practically raise faithful children. I don't know that I could share everything that's burning on my heart because there's a lot in a short space of time. And so I'd rather just uh, want to give an encouragement. I have two encouragements and a statement, and then I'll sort of meander off to something else. Um, and so the first encouragement is this for the parents. Parents, and I'm speaking to myself, obviously. Please will you talk to each other. Uh, please will you confess and repent of the areas where you are struggling, where you need support. Will you reach out for that support and that prayer? The stigma that we have it all together is a lie. I don't have it all together. Our family, we do not have it all together. I shout and scream sometimes. Um, but we have to have the humility to glean from one another. Every family is unique, absolutely. But there is beauty to be had and to be learned from in every single family. It takes a village, not to raise, to form a child. The second encouragement is for single, retired, not yet parent folk, aka everyone else. <laughs> Your season, though with our children, is not wasted. It is not a doomed waiting space where you wait to get to the important things. Uh, it, you are a whole person right now where you are. And so my encouragement for you is, would you find family because community is God's way? Would you embed yourself in that family? You will learn so much. 1,000% those parents need support and help and someone to do the hide-and-seek thing just a little bit. <laughs> and those children, they need to see a variety of people love Jesus and wrestle with the holy things of God in a variety of ways. It takes a village to raise a child. And then here's a statement after that little, my own rampage, like a Josiah. <laughs> here's a statement. There is nobody in the world out there that is going to raise your kids to Jesus, that is going to teach them the ways of Jesus uh, like you can. Uh, so perhaps those people's passion will drive them to good works or, or help them teach your kids about social justice, which of course is in the heart of God, and so we do celebrate that. But the responsibility of discipling our children rests first and foremost on us as parents, and then on this community. 
We need to create a community and a culture together in which our children can see and experience the love of God, the wrestlings of faith, and the authenticity of a beautiful and messy body of believers who love Jesus. And so each one of us, this is the second time I'll say it, I promise the last, need to be Josiah for our children. We need to tear down our idols. We need to be doggedly determined to stick close to Jesus, to rest on the spirits, um, to overcome our addictions and our worldly inclinations. We need to collectively create a culture that will form our children to stand firm in the oppressive culture that is here and that is growing in our midst. Okay, I'd like to segue just a moment to talk about our Sundays together uh, as a family here in this hall. This Sunday moment is an extension of the discipleship that you form your child in during the week. And so that means that the primary responsibility still rests on us as parents here on a Sunday. So if you are a guest with with us uh, this morning, we don't have a formalized kids' church at all. If you have been here a while, you will know this because we say this every single Sunday. Um, But the reason for that is because we believe that this Sunday gathering is an opportunity for discipleship for our children. It's an opportunity to demonstrate to our children how we engage with God and how we engage with each other so that we're able to strengthen our respective relationships with God. It is our hope that as our children mature and are deliberately being discipled during the week and on a Sunday, that they will grow in their capacity to engage on a Sunday, to discern the voice of the Lord, to participate uh, on a Sunday with us. But for that to happen, they need to, with, with um, increasing measure, be involved in a Sunday meeting. It would, so they need to be involved in a Sunday meeting, which means they need to be present, actually here, like these children are right now. Um, they need to be able to grow those listening and praying and pondering muscles just like we do. It would be golden, absolutely golden, if they could sit and just be silent. (laughs) However, children have different capacities and different developmental stages, and so that's not always possible. And so I would like to encourage you to discern, uh, help your child to sit quietly in a meeting. Perhaps at first, uh, that is with whatever their current attention span is. Perhaps that's five to ten minutes of just sitting quietly in the meeting together. Um, and then next Sunday, we increase that a little bit, and it's gradual, and we move forward. I've seen firsthand, and I'm not thinking of my own children here, but I've seen firsthand that it is possible for children to sit through a meeting as young as two years old and be quiet and take in. It's, it's amazing what they're able to learn. But that win didn't happen uh, overnight. It wasn't like, sit down, be quiet. It happened gradually over time. And so then I also, as I just told you to discern what your children can do on a Sunday, I also want to say that I 100% understand that sometimes the only thing that we can discern is when bedtime will be because exhaustion and compassion fatigue is real. We have had sick kids for three weeks, and I think I'm just about to kill over. But there is no, even in our exhaustion, there is no investment that we can make in the lives of our children and their relationship with the Father that is wasted, no matter how young or old those children are. And so as an example of this, I want to share a quick example. I need a sip of water. I want to share an example with you. A couple of weeks ago, we had pre-Sunday, maybe you'll remember it, where we worshipped and then we prayed at the end. Um, and while we were praying at the end, all the adults were praying, and there were three groups of kids that had formed in, the, in that little corner over there. And um, they were varying in age, and 
I was like, okay, we've got to get them praying. So we sort of mobilized them, helped them get praying. But those kids were praying in a Sunday meeting, and they were listening to their friends praying. That's so beautiful. And so, yes, they needed coaching, and there was a silly moment and the eye roll and whatever, and they needed guidance. But soon they were praying into very real things. They were praying into things of bullying and things of orphans and things of loving in their school environments. Um, and so isn't that just so beautiful? They need God, and God wants to meet with them. It's his heart. And so that's how formation works, right? We invest a little bit, and it shapes them. We guide them, and it shapes them. We encourage, and it shapes them. That's exactly our job. And so I would like to close. The musos, please come up at this point. I'd like to close by saying this. You are your place of safety for your child, and the world will tell you that what you should do in order to do that is a list as long as from me right out into the street. And there's a list of organic vegetables and playgroups that you absolutely have to be a part of. Um, but I think our end goal as, as followers of the Lord is simply this, to nourish our children in a loving and tender environment toward a faithful, honest, authentic, consistent relationship with the Lord. Um, we are all starting in different spaces here. Oh, I'm so painfully aware of that. Some of us have had a head start with Jesus-loving, uh, attentive, caring parents who helped us work through all our stuff. Some of us have not. Some of us had to have had to work really hard to overcome some trauma, some hardships, some unhelpful patterns, and they've had to work really hard to form some of that habits in their own family. Please don't feel guilted or ashamed of where you're at. There is grace for every single space. Uh, all I think that we have to do for our own selves is take the next step of obedience in turning your own eyes towards Jesus. I feel confident that he will lead you every step of the way, that he will empower you and equip you. And sometimes that will be from those sacred moments, Daniel praying three times a day in his room. And sometimes, I think perhaps more often, it'll be at the hand of a community that is on a very similar journey to you about being obedient to the Lord. I'm going to end there and hand over to you. So there's a lot in there, and I, th I think looking at Josiah's life and looking at Daniel's life and his, his, his friends, um, it is totally possible for Liberty to be a community that inspires a generation of Jesus-loving kids that grow up to be a generation that in a world which, quite frankly, none of us know the direction it's going in, but it's, it, this, the, the signs are scary, um, can stand firm and thrive. Um, but it's, it's not going to come with just a few people. This whole community, whether you are retired, whether you are 19, and anywhere in between, uh, we all, like Josiah, need to draw near to the Lord, seek Him out with our whole hearts, with our might, with our strength, and deal with our stuff, to rip evil out. So it's, a, it's a forceful, you read that story, it's violence. We need, to, we need to deal with the evil in our lives for the sake of the next generation. We need to show them what humility and repentance looks like. No one else is going to do it. It's up to the people in this room. We have to, we have to be those people for the next generation. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to worship the Lord. But I would, I would ask of you, as you stand and you sing these songs, could you just lean into God? What is it that 
your next step of obedience looks like? What sin do you need to deal with? Or what, what does drawing near to him look like for you? What's, what is it? What is it that he has for you to do? Practically, there's so many steps that Monique mentioned. We're all at different places. I, we can't prescribe. It's going to come from an intimacy with you and Jesus. And this is a moment for that. I'm confident as you draw near, he will speak. So I'm going to pray for us, but could you respond and ask God just to reveal to you, what is it that is for me to do? So Lord God, we thank you for, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, of Josiah, of, of these people of old, Lord God, that did not by any means have an easy life or a culture that was more tolerant. Um, they, they had equally as hard and difficult, challenging circumstances, and we could learn from them. As we, as we reflect on how they lived, Holy Spirit, would you stir in our hearts how we are to live? Would you, would you point out to us the things that we need to uproot, the idols that we need to pull down, the repentance and the humility we need to show towards our kids, but towards you, Lord God? It, it can only impact them if it's authentic with you. And so as much as I want to say it's for the next generation, God, we need to do this in and of ourselves for you. And so as, as we enter into a time of singing and, and worship, we surrender ourselves. We bring ourselves again to your feet. We are here for you, God. We're here because you created us. And where else can we go? Where else can we find purpose or meaning? You know, as, we, as we enter into your presence, would you speak to us, Lord God? We come in faith. Some of us don't even know where to start. We, didn't even, we can't even tell what day of the week it is. Lord God, uh, parenting is hard. But we, we come to you asking, God, would you just lead and guide us? What's the next step of obedience? What's the one thing? And would you empower people this morning, Lord God? Empower us to deal with us and empower us to, to repent. Empower us to be a generation that would, would, would put all our might into following you, into exalting you, that would not look to our left or our right, but would look to you, Lord God, would, would commit ourselves as a covenant to be your people and you to be our God. We can only do that through your power, God, through you, Holy Spirit. Would you come and would you be with us and speak to us, we pray and ask in Jesus' name.